On this edition of the Discover the Word podcast, the group will be continuing a conversation we started in our last episode about how easy it is to misread the Apostle Paul. Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes authors Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien are helping us to see how the 21st century Western culture lenses that we may be reading the Bible through can cause us to misunderstand and misread and misinterpret and struggle to like who Paul is and what he wrote. Brandon O'Brien admits that at one time, that was him. It has been the sort of changing lenses, helping to see what I had put on Paul that didn't belong there from my own historical and cultural place. Once I was able to remove those things and kind of read him in his context, then now I'm a fan of and an admirer of and love Paul's example as well. Well, helping you get there is what we hope our conversations about misreading Paul will accomplish. And so pull a chair up and join the group as we discover the word next. And it is great to have you here as we begin part two of the conversations regular Discover the Word group members, Marty Hahn and Elisa Morgan and Bill Crowder are having with Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien about misreading Paul. Randy and Brandon have also written a book about this called Paul Behaving Badly that they'll mention from time to time and I'll tell you more about later on in this episode. And in these conversations, they're going to address some of the really thorny issues that people have with Paul and his writings. That he seemed to legitimize and not be as critical of slavery as we'd like him to be. That he in effect was chauvinistic and wanted to silence women. And what about the seemingly, at worst, racist and, at best, insensitive language that he sometimes used? There's not a lot of patience for racist or insensitive language that is critical of or demeaning of other cultures or people groups in our world today. Being careful about how you speak and stereotype others is a big deal because It's believed that those words indicate what kind of person you really are. And so, if that's true, was Paul then a racist? Well, that's the question that this first conversation will address. And so let's listen as Bill leads off part two of Misreading Paul with Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien. The first time that you were with us, we were talking about your book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And we got such wonderful response from our listeners about how helpful that was to them as they approach the Scripture. And in a way, we're taking a lot of those lenses and applying them to some trouble spots in Paul's letters, right? Was that your intent? Did you say, okay, now let's do it with Paul? Well, yes and no. It's funny. The book, Misreading Scripture with West and I, started with a paper that I had done misreading Paul through Western eyes. So we, we started that way. Full and circle. Brandon yeah. recognized that there was a lot more that with his help we could get out of that idea. But we took those lenses when we were looking at Paul because we think actually are good lenses to use. Okay. And Paul has brought you back to the table now, finally, right? <laughs> yes. And you guys love Paul. We love Paul. We do. I've spent my life studying Paul. As I mentioned last week, was hesitant, reluctant at first with Paul. But it has been the sort of changing lenses, helping to see what I had 
put on Paul that didn't belong there from my own historical and cultural place, Mm -hmm. once I was able to remove those things and kind of read him in his context, then now I'm a fan of and an admirer of and love Paul's example as well. If someone said, do you see now Paul just flowing out of Jesus? I mean, do you see the two working together? Wow. Yeah. I think what Paul is doing is extending the ministry of Jesus beyond the monoculture of the you know the Jewish, Jewish context. So he's taking that message into a context that was not prepared for it. They didn't have scriptures or heritage or history to be ready for a coming Messiah. And he's figuring out how to tell this story now in this place. And so in terms of the content, the material of the gospel that he's preaching, there's this connection. And I think what I understand now about when he tells people to imitate him He's saying that to people who don't have these scriptures. How else will they know what Jesus was like except to have heard it from him and seen it in him and experienced it from him because they didn't have the New Testament that we have (laughs) Mm -hmm. just yet. And so I think in that sense, he's both in content and in his example. Let's stay with that for just a minute because that's a really important point, isn't it? They didn't have the four gospels put together in the way that we do today, right? Paul wrote the Galatians and he talks about Jesus. He said, before whom you saw Jesus publicly crucified. Well, none of the Galatians were at Calvary. Mm-hmm. So how and where did they see Jesus publicly crucified? They saw it in Paul. Mm. When Paul was stoned in Lystra, they saw Jesus relived in front of them. The scholars sometimes call it the cruciformed life, mm. that Paul's life was being shaped by the cross. And so they could see Christ's love and sacrifice for all of humanity, played out in front of them in Lystra. Well, he himself was pointing back to the Christ, right? Absolutely. And that's a great point because when Paul encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road and Jesus speaks to Ananias and says, I will show Paul how much he has to suffer for my name. I think I'd always read that as sort of retribution because Paul has done these terrible things to Christians. Uh Now he's going to have these terrible things happen. But I think the reality is Paul is going to sort of re-embody for the Gentiles what Jesus had experienced before the Jews, mm-hmm. preaching the gospel, receiving the condemnation of the people, being you know faithful unto death. So he's kind of reliving that again. It's not retribution. It's just this so is So his him suffering forward. is really, you know, we can look at it as retribution, as you said, or we can see it as a kind of a reenactment without the Gospels, without some mm-hmm. of these written. That's right. And it was Jesus' original call, take up your cross and follow me. Mm-hmm. And Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to die. So it is the Christian call. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, mm-hmm. the call of Jesus has never changed. It's come and die. Mm-hmm. Paul actually is living out the Gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. So as Paul lives out the gospel in his culture and in his context, we then try to transpose that into our culture and in our context. And sometimes it seems like, to use a phrase you've used several times, Randy, that Paul's on the wrong side of history on some really important issues. That's right. And there are a few that we'll talk about as we go. One that I think is really important in our historical moment is the question of racism and racial reconciliation. And part of the challenge that Paul had is that he is living this cross-cultural life. From the Jewish perspective, I suppose there are two races. There's Jews and there's everyone else, you know, in the first century, Jews and Gentiles. For the Greeks, I suppose there were Greeks and barbarians. There was sort of two categories. And he's navigating between the two. He says a lot of things that feel, if not outright racist to us, then at least 
insensitive, that they're dealing in stereotypes. He says things that we would never say in the 21st century. Shall we look at an example? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Elisa, would you read Titus 1.12? You bet. Titus is living on the Isle of Crete, and Paul has assigned him there to work with the Cretans to do ministry. Okay, picking it up, verse 12, one of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And then it goes on, this saying is true. It's true. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no. Ooh. We were okay until he added that last part. And we say, well, you know, ha, 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 that's kind of okay. Well, for my friends on the Isle of Crete, it's not okay. <laughs> and uh, there's some fun things going on. The Cretan who actually said this originally was a fun philosopher. And so he's There actually, is such a thing as a yes. fun philosopher? Yeah. <laughs> well, he pulled a trick on everybody. At least one, yeah. He said, Cretans are always liars. And they're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Well, since he's a Cretan, then he's always a liar. So when he calls them evil beasts and lazy gluttons, he's lying <laughs> because they're not. But it, the problem is it's such a fun joke. It went right right over all of our heads. And so we didn't get it. It went right by me. I've never, ever heard that. You mean there are things in God's holy Bible that people don't get? They have to unpack. And we are always unpacking them for our own day. Hmm. But Cretans had this reputation also for not taking seriously the injunctions to live godly lives and that sort of thing. So Paul is encouraging Titus, look, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a challenge. It's tough. I had a similar experience recently in California. This Latino pastor was speaking to a group of Latino pastors, and he said, San Salvadorians, they're tough. They're doing this and that. And and he makes three or four other comments about San Salvadorians. And one of the guys says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What do you have against San Salvadorians? And he said, well, I'm San Salvadorian. Both my parents are San Salvadorians. They said, oh, well, in that case, go ahead. (laughs) And then it was perfectly okay for him to go ahead and say those things. We react when Paul says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians. We don't really pick all the insult out of that. They were in southern Greece. The people called Galatians from Galatai, what we translate Galatians, Celts actually, were living in northern Greece. Turkey today, we call it. They were called Galatians. The people in South Galatia were not called Galatians, didn't want to be called Galatians because the Galatians up north didn't speak Greek. They were barbarians, as Brandon mentioned. And they were known for being fickle and changing religions all the time. And so when Paul says, look, you foolish Galatians, he's fussing at them for having changed religions. He says, you know, you've forsaken the gospel already. Well, some of the edge of that is taken out because Paul's from that region. We forget that Paul is from Derby, which is part of Southern Galatia. Mm. So he's an insider like this San Salvadorian. So when you realize that Paul's one of them, when he says, hey, you foolish Galatians. So you're saying Paul was one of them. He's one of them. And we forget that because he did grow up in Jerusalem. And he will play that Jerusalem card when he's in Jerusalem. But when he's in Galatia, southern Galatia, he's playing his I'm one of you card. So Mm -hmm. he does an inside joke that they would have gotten that to us just seems a little bit harsh. What's so interesting, though, is that Paul, is he's got these other wonderful scriptures that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. So there he seems so inclusive, so Mm -hmm. all-embracing. He talks about how important it is to him when he's with a certain people to be as one of them. Right. Yeah, I become all things to all people that I might by some means win all. All right, and I'm going to 
push back a little bit on that. That is, okay. it is what Paul says. It does not mean that when Paul is among Gentiles, he eats like a Gentile and forgets his Jewish heritage. Mm-hmm. And when he's among Jews, he's living according to Torah. That would actually be hypocrisy. But I think that Paul there is talking about when he's in Jerusalem, he reasons and plays mm-hmm. his Jerusalem card. Hey, I was educated here, that sort of thing. When he's in Galatia, he uses a Galatian story to poke them right where it hurts that, hey, you're acting like how we're stereotyped, that we will just flip religions at the turn of a hat. And with the Cretans, he's playing on their stereotype that they act in this Epicurean sort of way that they don't have good moral standards. But it's always as an insider that he's doing that and he's using it to push them in ways that might not feel comfortable to us, but they were comfortable with it. So once again, the words don't need to change, but our understanding Mm -hmm. of those words needed. Our understanding and probably our application. So this may be one of those places where it's not a good idea to imitate Paul by doing exactly what he did. So in 21st century America, dealing in racial or ethnic stereotypes as a way to get someone's attention, not a wise move, right? It doesn't mean that Paul was sinning or behaving badly when he did that in the first century, but it may mean that for us to do the same sort of thing, we have to figure out how to follow his example without doing exactly what he did. So it's not just our application that needs to change, it's our attitude that needs to change. Well, I would say that, you know, Paul loved them. They knew he loved them. He knew he sacrificed for them. They never had a moment's doubt how much Paul loved them. So the fact that Paul could say it this way was their cultural way of saying it. (laughs) I think you hit it. If you know somebody loves you, Mm -hmm. as you indicate, they knew Paul loved them. Then you understand it in that spirit. We've been covering a lot of ground in these these conversations. Mm -hmm. You've pulled in so many different perspectives that show how careful we need to be in reading the scriptures today. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that stuck in my mind, you talked about how in our day, we know that we can make certain comments about other people if they're a part of our group. Even jokes. Yeah, even Mm -hmm. jokes about our own group. We got to be really careful in making comments about those outside of our group, right? Yes. And also, Paul was blunt at times. So he's making a joke as an insider, but he does it in a way that's a bit blunt. And that's okay. His culture tended to be a bit blunt. I've lived in countries where cultures were blunt. In Indonesia, they would compliment us by saying, oh, you've gotten so fat. And, uh, <laughs> that's and, a compliment. And we know that, but, you know, ouch, it still hurts. So mm. there are, and I have, unfortunately. So the, uh, <laughs> don't laugh so much. So, This does not mean that Paul is giving us permission to be blunt. You need to be culturally appropriate. Paul was culturally appropriate. So he could be a bit blunt because their cultures were. Everybody was comfortable with it. It does not give me permission to be blunt in ways that would be rude in my culture. So this is kind of raising an issue where we have different categories of things that we need to be careful about with Paul, right? So one is there's this issue of Paul's language about certain people that's kind of culturally connected. And once we know he's saying that at a time when it was culturally appropriate. Like the Cretans. The Cretans are always liars yeah. and lazy brutes and evil gluttons, right? I think I got some of those words mixed up. But the just... <laughs> So he can say that because of his cultural context. But there are other things in Paul 
that we feel like culture doesn't explain it away. Mm. So for example, slavery is an institution in the first century. Paul was familiar with slavery. He actually called himself a slave of Christ over and over again. But our American connection and history with slavery is so evil and you know there's so much baggage that we can't just say, oh, well, that was then he didn't know any better. You know, if this person who's a representative of Christ was okay with slavery, then that feels fundamentally different. Right. Yeah. So how was it different? Well, there are a lot of differences, and I'll start and Randy will jump in, I'm sure. One that's, I think, on the face of it and connects to racism is that slavery was not determined by race or ethnicity in the ancient world like it is today. So there was not a slave race like it was in our past. There were people of all races who were enslaved for various reasons. So it could be prisoners of war or debtors or, you know, whatever. And it was never pretty, right? I mean, it was cruel. Right. It's not like saying slavery in America was awful and slavery in the first century was, was fine. There was sexual abuse between masters and slaves. There was just general manipulation, lack of freedom. freedom. You're still indebted to a person. Mm -hmm. And so there's a story about slaves at a dinner where they're told to stand upright and be silent. And if they shifted or sneezed or whatever, they could be beaten for interrupting the dinner. That's, you know, so there's still this sort of, it's profoundly oppressive, right? But there were certain liberties that slaves in the ancient world had that slaves in American slavery did not. For instance, slaves were customarily freed around age 30. You think, well, that's just terribly gracious of them. Well, they also thought productivity went down at a certain point. And the lifespan wasn't as long. (laughs) And the lifespan wasn't as long. Now, what's interesting is the slave who became freed, called a freedman or a freedwoman, would still be connected to the household. You say, well, that doesn't really make any difference. Well, yes, but then they could marry differently Husbands and wives could not be separated, which was one of the great tragedies of Mm -hmm. ancient slavery. Mm -hmm. Slaves could actually have their own slave if they could afford one. Slaves could work a job in the evening. They got off work at five. And so they could pick up an evening job. And if they worked at it hard enough and long enough, they could save enough money to buy their own freedom. So there were differences. But ultimately, it's a fundamental attack on human rights, that this person is the property of someone. So when Paul writes, like in Ephesians, about slaves, be obedient to your master, what are we to make of those kinds of comments? Hmm. We take as well the norm, like, oh, well, Paul just embraced slavery? Well, first off, it's automatically we default to insult. You know, Paul is saying, slaves, obey your masters. That's almost a duh you know, in the ancient world. Well, what else is a slave supposed to do? They're (laughs) supposed to obey their master. What would have stunned everybody in Ephesus was he's talking to them. Hmm. As Brandon pointed out in the illustration, they're supposed to stand silently behind you, not make any sound, be as non-noticed as possibly could be. But just to poke at that a second, we expect Paul to say, masters, free your slaves. Yeah, right. It would be, in Rome, 90% of the people were slaves. 90%? 90% of the people in Rome were slaves. That's why Rome was so afraid of slave revolts. But basically, there were no employees. All the work was done by slaves. You had a few freed people in the sense of craftsmen. So a baker would not be a slave, although everyone who does the work in the bakery would be slaves. Mm -hmm. So for us to expect Paul to say, free the slaves, the first thought would be, well, wait a minute, who's going to do the work? It would have turned society upside down, right? Right. Well, and... More than that, we're asking Paul to envision an economic system 
that no one in the ancient world had ever envisioned. Mm -hmm. So it's not a fair critique to say, Paul, you should have thought of a whole new way to run the world. But what he does do is something even more radical than that. He says a master and a slave are brothers Mm -hmm. in the Lord, and they share the same table the Lord's table. So it's not just an economic system, it's a socio-economic system, and he's attacking the social side of it. In a sense, the entire system, because it's not like our employee-employer relationship is marvelous. Um, It's not like our system is perfect, and the gospel needs to address that as well. The wealthy landowner who has these migrant workers who are just barely making it, He's supposed to say, these are my brothers and sisters, and we share the Lord's table Mm -hmm. together. So the gospel's not done turning the world upside down, as you Mm -hmm. said. So Paul does address these things. He's doing it, what were called household codes, household rules. You're supposed to say, and you're only supposed to address the men. So you're supposed to say, husbands do this, fathers do this, and masters do this, and therefore keep your house in proper order. So Paul does that, and he does it by completely flipping it upside down. He addresses the other side. And you just weren't even supposed to talk. Mm. You weren't supposed to talk to slaves, talk to children, talk to wives. He wasn't supposed to do Mm. any of that stuff. So they were scandalized by them for the opposite reason that we're scandalized. Mm. That's right. He is giving everyone in the household greater dignity and greater access to the gospel and social capital than Roman culture would have. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to emphasize he's so fundamentally altering those relationships in those codes that even though he's not saying masters free your slaves, I think he's saying masters, if the gospel works in you and you embrace your slaves as your brothers, this system will collapse right? And maybe not the institution. They may still be called slaves. They may still be called masters. But the abuse that existed between those and the manipulation and the lack of liberty, that that stuff will disappear. And so he was working for a radical kind of reorientation, just not renaming it under a new institution. He had a goal in mind. And Mark, you had mentioned it in an earlier conversation. In Christ, there's neither slave nor free. So he envisioned a place where everybody is the same. You say, well, why didn't he go ahead and spell it out? He couldn't imagine what it looked like. Hmm. And Hmm. that's not a fair critique of him for him not to have spelled it out. But he knew the goal. He knew where they were headed. One day there'll be a world where there's no slave or free, male or female. Hmm. We're all one in Christ Jesus. One of the things I think we bump on with Paul is that we want him because... God uses him and inspires him to write the Holy Scriptures. We want him to have a God-like mind, (laughs) you know, and so we want to attribute to him divine attributes. It's kind of startling for me to hear you saying you couldn't imagine. You're going, God could do anything with everything God is possible. But you're making me realize Paul is a human instrument. Right. God knew where he was going. And by the way, where we're still going. It's not like we've gotten there. And it's easy for us to sit in our chair and criticize previous generations all the way back to Paul. We need to recognize that should the Lord tarry 50 years from now, that generation will Mm -hmm. critique us for not speaking out more on issues, including some issues we've never even thought of. Mm -hmm. So no matter the generation, we're all somewhere short Mm -hmm. of where Christ is planning to take us, right? That's right. And I think the fact that Paul couldn't imagine a different scenario than slavery, even though he can imagine a different relationship, is really clear in the fact that slave of Christ is one of his favorite Mm -hmm. Mm. identifications for himself. 
it's interesting. We often translate it servant of Christ (laughs) because it's so distasteful for us to think of it. So if you're talking about slaves obey your masters, we use slave, but in our English translations. But if we say, I, Paul, a slave of Christ, we translate it servant because it just, it grates us that that would be his choice. But that's the world that Paul lived in. And he's Mm -hmm. saying, yes, and we serve Christ. And when we serve Christ, when we are slaves of Christ, it changes absolutely everything. So the master is also a slave, but he's a slave of Christ. Ah. So everybody is on the sort of equal footing and that radically reorients all of those relationships. Mm. Yeah, great conversation there, exploring the questions we have about slavery and the way it's treated in the Bible and especially the writings of the Apostle Paul. It's so easy to misread Paul on this. And that's the name of the series here on Discover the Word, Misreading Paul, with three of your regular study partners, Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder. And they're joined at the table for these conversations by our friends, authors, Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien. And next, they're going to talk about another thing about Paul and his writings that we can struggle with today. They'll look at some of the things women can find offensive. Does Paul promote a chauvinistic view of how men and women relate? Well, we'll get to that after this reminder. You know, to be honest, uh, we are just scratching the surface on some of this, but gratefully, Randy and Brandon have written a book that goes into greater detail on this topic. It's called Paul Behaving Badly. And as you read, you'll become equipped with tools to remove the 21st century Western culture blinders that can keep us from seeing the life-changing wisdom of the Bible. This is a book that the group highly recommends to all who study with us because of the way it so clearly identifies questions that we and others have about not just the writings of Paul, but so many parts of the Bible. We think you'll benefit from Brandon and Randy's clear and yet nuanced approach. You can order Paul Behaving Badly by Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien When you go online to our discovertheword.org website, we have a link there on our website this week, or you can just search online for the title, Paul Behaving Badly, and you'll find a way to order a copy that way. And now let's listen as the group addresses the criticism of Paul that characterizes him as chauvinistic in his view of how men and women relate. As we continue talking about how easy it is for us to misread Paul, we come to a topic that I really want to dive into, and I think we all do. It's the the text where he talks about women. And I'm going to be just honest, when I read the Gospels, and we've had such rich conversations together and are stunned at Jesus's embrace and inclusion and honoring and revolutionarily including women, and then Paul puts down these words of containment, they confuse me, and I just get stuck. You don't have any feelings about this, do you? No. (laughs) And the reality is is that, you know, half our population is female, maybe more so, and the church is female. And how do we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, free each other to serve the way God designed us to? And how do we read Paul? Maybe it would be helpful to just jump into a passage. Um, 1 Corinthians 14 is one that comes up pretty often in these conversations. Uh, It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 
verses 34 and 35. It seems a classic example of what Elisa said is containment. Containment, yeah. And and I do think that's a way we misread Paul. Mm. I don't think he saw containment in this. But yeah. it sounds as though he does. Is that what it you're saying? It absolutely does. And let's see it? what it says. Yeah. Okay. okay, let me read it for us. First uh, Corinthians 14, 34, 35. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. I think containment's a pretty good <laughs> yeah. word. It's like a lock on your tongue, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet we look at these as inspired words, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does touch on a couple of the issues. One is the kind of how do women behave in church, and then how do the women relate to their husbands, right? right? So it has yeah. kind of couple touches of on multiple mm-hmm. issues here. And I think this is one of those places because when we come to this text from our historical and cultural perspective, it is very hard to make sense of what's happening here. Uh, and Unless so we think, just take it literally and say that that's where it should be. But right? then we run into a problem when we hit Galatians and Paul says in Christ... There's no male or female. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what's that got to do and with And as this? Elisa said, you look at Jesus and the way he related to women. Okay. so well, And Paul uh, commends Phoebe as a, a leader in the church. Yeah. And he has Aquila and Priscilla. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty clear Priscilla is doing some wonderful work. And so it's interesting that you said this is a lock on our tongue. Some of this is language. Remain silent in our culture means zip does, I can yeah. I can remember the little elementary school teacher drawing the little zipper across <laughs> the lips it means no sound hmm. and yet we find this text used in uh, all the time in school texts in the Greek and Roman world students were to be silent now you're taking us back into the old world into right? the old world into the world of the Greeks and the Romans where they had school and Jews did as well but they followed the Greek and Roman model so students were to remain silent, and they used this word, and their model was dialogue. So students and teachers dialogued, but the whole time students were to remain silent. <laughs> you think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't work. Well, it's because it's a terrible translation for our word silent. That word, we say silent, and for us that means no sound, and what they meant was quiet. So, well, what's uh, the difference? Well, not rowdy might be a So better. it's more attitudinal than it is related to speech itself. Right. It doesn't mean no talking. It would, I think we would say no loud talking, no interrupting, mm. uh, don't be rowdy. Is be conscientious okay of other, other people speaking. Right. Or? Because we have lots of examples of students who are held up as models of being silent and yet they talked. <laughs> and so however we read the rest of this, and we need to uh, absolutely look at it, um, when he says women should remain silent in the church, he means women should not be rowdy in the church, loud and, and interrupting. You say, well, who in the world would do that? And why just women? I mean, are men supposed to be rowdy in the church? You know, right? <laughs> Great question. And we remember that this is a letter written to a specific situation to address specific issues. And one of the challenges they have in Corinth are uh, young widows. So well, who are these people? Well, these are wealthy women They're wealthy because usually they're the second wife. They married in, the guy died off, and now they have this freedom that Roman law really can't address. Mm -hmm. They're not really responsible to anybody, and they have money. And they're being a patroness. They're hosting the church. And we'll see this show up in other ways in Paul's letter. They're treating it like their private dinner party. And so church church Mm -hmm. is like their private dinner party, and they're being loud and boisterous. And Paul is saying this is not 
appropriate. So would he have said this to men as well? I think so. But in this particular situation in Corinth, the problem they're addressing happens to be some women doing it. Okay, and one more time. You said they were meeting in their homes pretty much, meeting right? In the, always in the homes. And treating it as though, okay. And so this this party, this dinner that they're hosting to invite people to come in and do worship together, they're treating it like a private party mm-hmm. rather than a public gathering of the community of faith. And it is worth pointing out, you know, that we read this from our point of view as when we we hear women should remain silent in the churches, we hear all women everywhere in all times mm-hmm. must remain silent in the churches. But, you know, implied this, but having come right out and said it, that Paul may be just saying women in the churches in Corinth should remain silent because there's this particular challenge that they're facing. And so the question is, how how universal is this? Is he addressing a local church issue or is he making a general proclamation about what ought to happen everywhere? And the answer shouldn't be, oh, well, I think we should look at Scripture. So does he apply this everywhere? And what we see is no. Well, what evidence do we have for that? In the very same letter, Paul is writing to them and he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, and then we immediately go into the whole mess about what do head coverings mean and all of that, but we miss the, the first part. Here is a woman who is praying and prophesying. She's not silent. She is not silent. She hmm. is speaking hmm. in church. And we see in other letters, he allows women to speak and to teach and to take leadership roles. So the answer is, well, even in Paul's own ministry, he did not apply this to every situation at all times. But there's already something kind of revolutionary about the fact that he expects that women can learn. Right. So, I mean, we kind of gloss over that. That doesn't all sound demeaning. I mean, you know, (laughs) if I'm a woman listening to this on the radio, say what did he just say? That, right. Paul actually believed women could learn. <laughs> That's right. Back that up for me right. a little bit. So for our, from our, again, <laughs> from our point of view, we don't assume that women are intellectually inferior to men and those that only men should be able to learn because they only have the capacity to learn. But in the first century, Romans and Jews, for all their differences, both agreed that education was wasted on women. There's no point in educating women uh, because they can't handle the kinds of things that men can handle. Right. So what we want to say is thank you to the gospel Mm -hmm. that we no longer think that way. Right. So across the known world of that time period, they all thought that. Mm -hmm. And now we don't think that. And we think, well, it's because we've become more sophisticated. No, thank you, gospel, Mm -hmm. for opening that door and creating that opportunity for us. So they put in motion what we now benefit from. And so then we look back and we critique them for it when they're actually they're the in process, sources. right? Yeah, they they put it into motion. So we should say thank you to them rather than kick them in the shins under the table. And like Elisa said at the beginning of the conversation, in a sense, Paul is moving the ball down the field from a point where Jesus had already moved the ball down the field because there were women who followed him, uh, even though it was totally against Jewish culture. He had Mary, who was sitting at his feet while he was teaching, uh, things that were completely unheard of, Jesus was doing, and it seems like Paul is taking that a few steps further. Right. And so we critique Paul, for instance, in 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 15, he says, these women, these young widows are going from house church to house church, idle, busybodies, talking nonsense, and they're creating trouble in the church. We say, okay, well, that's obviously a local situation. But then we don't take the advice he gives from that as applying to that local situation. He's targeting these particular 
younger widows in this case who are causing this trouble. And he says, younger widows should remarry. I mean, is that application for everybody all over time? No. Mm -hmm. But he's saying in that particular situation, that's what they need to do. Mm -hmm. So he's applying particular advice to a particular situation. And as Brandon said, we're in trouble when we try to say this applies to all women in all places at all times. Okay, yesterday in our conversation, we were talking about Paul's statements to women in 1 Corinthians 14, and you guys built a really strong case for this being a local issue that Paul was dealing with in that particular church. But throughout the years, one of the things that um, I've found really difficult to wrestle with is when is a situation in the Scriptures local and when is it something that's supposed to be applied universally? Yeah. And how do you know the difference? Especially in Paul's writings, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And right. it's a matter of what you want to believe, right? Sometimes it feels like that. How do we know it's not just a matter of what we want to believe? Right. So the questions are, when are we to interpret something that Paul says is sort of culturally conditioned? And it depends on the context. And when are we to look at it and say, this is a universal gospel principle for all time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so a great text that comes to mind is Galatians uh, 3 verse 28, that is a favorite, a dear, precious passage. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, right? So is this a universal (laughs) proclamation for all time, or is this something that's specific to the Galatians? I think the first clue for us always has to be the context of the letter. Hmm. So what's going on in the passage where we're reading? So yesterday when we're talking about women remaining silent in church, is that a universal thing? Well, right in the same letter, Paul allows for women to be speaking in church. So that's a clue for us, kind of the pothole to go back to that metaphor, that there's something going on that may be cultural, Mm -hmm. right? That that would clue us in. Also, when we read uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, now concerning the question you had about this, and now concerning the question you had about that. So very clearly, he's answering questions. While in Galatians, he's been talking about the role of the gospel, the point of the gospel. Mm, He's laying out uh, general teaching. Right. Mm. As Mart said, it can never be, well, I like this verse, and I don't like that verse. Absolutely not. It's God's word. But we need to look at, okay, did Paul himself intend this to be applied everywhere? or was he dealing with a particular situation? That's right. So in the book of Galatians, he's he's talking about the sort of cosmic change in relationship between Jews and Gentiles because of the gospel, hmm. that everyone has equal access to God through Christ, that the old walls have been brought down, that this isn't bound by law, that it isn't. So he's talking about this huge spiritual change. And in the context of that says... Because of all this, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or free, there's no male or female. And so that's the universal statement. It's in the context of this, you know, great sermon about what the gospel changes. And so we have to take that then to these other conversations about, well, is this local and cultural or is this more universal and see how those inform each other? You know, and it's often not rocket science. You know, when Paul says, stop lying to one another, <laughs> you know, we figure out, you know, I think Paul means everybody. everybody. <laughs> this is this is not just a command to a group in Colossae. He means all of us. We need to quit twisting the truth into something more comfortable. Hmm. So that applies. Also in 1 Corinthians, a more tricky passage, we sense by instinct 
that this probably is something cultural. When Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven five, a passage we read yesterday, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. So this passage is about head coverings. And, you know, it's tricky, and we'll talk about it in a second. But we already have a feeling, I think this head coverings thing probably is cultural. So we need to look at, well, what were head coverings in Corinth? Mm-hmm. Adult women were married. There were exceptions, but generally adult women were expected to be married. And the way they showed that they were married was they wore a veil. We have statues in Corinth of these wonderful couples, and the woman's head is veiled because that was polite. It, it was a show of respect to herself, to everyone else. So it's a sign of being married. When she got to her home, she could take her veil off. So the sign of a private situation was that she wasn't wearing her veil. Well, that's great. No problems. Suddenly, the church is now meeting in a woman's home. She's the patroness. And so now, when the church comes to her home, is this a public Hmm. meeting Hmm. or is this a private meeting? That's fascinating. And the problem is they're treating it like a private meeting. The woman is taking her head covering off and she's running the show just like she would if she was hosting a private party. And Paul is saying, no, this is not a private party. This is a public worship service. And so Paul says, if you do it with your head uncovered, you are dishonoring uh, the head, Christ probably. But, uh, and that can be debated, but the whole point is she's treating it like a private party. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. There are lots of ways we express our commitment externally, a wedding band, uh, you know, maybe some kind mm-hmm. of a head covering or a dot on your forehead, etc. in different cultures. So mm-hmm. your explanation is very yeah. intriguing. And I think also the imagery that in the early church, mm. they were in transition. Hmm. They were learning as they went. This was all on the fly. And so the line between a public gathering and a private gathering could easily be blurred hmm. because the person who has the house, it's always their house. Uh, and, yeah. and so they're figuring this stuff out. We kind of look at things 2,000 years later wrongly as if we figured it all out and we've got it all sorted. But then they were on the front end of this. Yeah, and it's when we're talking about the difference here between private space and public space and how do we conduct ourselves and what's specific to a location and what's universal, mm-hmm. Paul does seem to be saying that it is a universal truth that church meetings are public meetings and ought to be approached a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that's going to have implications then, more implications for women on how they ought to dress and conduct themselves and all that. Not because of necessarily what's appropriate for women, but what's appropriate for church. Hmm. When the group comes together to worship, how are we supposed to behave? Uh, and in these particular contexts, uh, Paul is prescribing a certain way of dressing or conducting yourself because of that the significance of corporate worship. Can we move into First Timothy 2 then about that? It's another very interesting words of Paul. And how are we to read them? Are they the general or the more specific? Is this about all kinds of worship or public worship. What are you thinking of? I'm thinking about 1 Timothy 2, um, Paul's instructions on worship. He has a, a long list of things about what we should wear, but then in verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, but that comes out of a passage about how men should pray, what we should wear, mm-hmm. etc. It is interesting. He says, men everywhere Uh, When they pray, lift up holy hands without anger. Verse 8. Obviously, they were 
lifting up hands, not so holy perhaps, sometimes in anger, sometimes in disputing. Paul says that's not appropriate. Then he says, I want women to dress modestly with decency, propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles, gold. This is where our culture comes in as, for instance, as Westerners, as an American. If you use the word woman, you use the word dress, and you use the word modesty, it automatically means sexually modest. But Paul was not actually talking about sexual modesty. He was talking about economically modest. He says, not adorning themselves with elaborate hairstyles, with gold, pearls, expensive clothes. There were ways to dress back then where a family could say, we have wealth. And so they would show up. The wealth was shown on the woman, not on the man. The man, Romans wore a toga. They're supposed to be austere and simple. So how do you show your wealth? Well, you put all the wealth on the wife. So she would have Hmm. these elaborate hairstyles strung with pearls and gold. And it would indicate, wow, I have money and you don't. And it created division in the church. Hmm. Now, today... It's okay to wear pearls, but I would say a couple things. One is in church, we often treat church like it's a private party. We have different ways of doing it, but we've all you're experienced saying we still it. do. We still do. Sometimes you're in a church service and it's being treated like a private party. Hmm. The other thing is we have ways of dressing that says or, or driving, or into, driving the parking lot. into the yeah. parking lot. Ways of saying I have money and you don't. And it creates division. Mm. We're dressing and acting in ways that make the less fortunate members of the church feel separated and distant. Mm. So in some ways, I think the first part of this passage, at least, that seems to be about the way women should dress is in some level a, a really a conversation about what's appropriate for the body of Christ in a corporate gathering. And women are, here are an illustration of that. Mm-hmm. But the emphasis is on the sort of propriety of public meetings. So are you seeing primarily then universal truth there or local? Right. I would say that, the, that universally what is true is that we should not find ways to promote our own status and divide ourselves in the body of Christ. And in particular, in this time, the way that was done was through elaborate hairstyles or fancy clothes. But if we want to apply that passage then we would find, well, what is it that our culture uses to Mm. reinforce our status and divide ourselves, you know, and and show off who has what? And we should avoid those things because those are, you know, violating that general rule of unity and propriety in the service. An important conversation about how to apply the scriptures. It is really easy for us to get this wrong. And so I hope you found that part of this discussion helpful. As our friend Haddon Robinson, who was part of these Discover the Word conversations for over 20 years, as he used to say, the hardest part of preaching and teaching and studying the Bible is by far the application. Applying what the Bible says to our world and our lives today is where, in his words, heresy is most likely to creep in. And so I think Haddon would have liked to be part of that conversation. Really helpful. Well, we will wrap up this series of conversations with Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien with more perspective and guidance to keep us from misreading Paul. After we take a moment to look ahead to where the group will be going for our next study together. On the next Discover the Word podcast, Daniel Ryan Day is back at the table with Mart and Elisa and Bill to talk about a place that is mentioned a surprising number of times throughout the Bible. You likely have read passages that have mentioned it, but you blew right past them. 
And so, kind of like Sherlock Holmes solving a mystery, Daniel wants us to... So I want us to put on our deerstalker hats. And you're doing that. Isn't that what Sherlock wears? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I want to ask all of us to put these hats on and to follow some little clues about the Hebrew word shinar, which is a place. How do you spell that? In English, you would spell it S-H-I-N-A-R. Okay. Shinar. Shinar, okay. Okay. We've titled the series, What Happens in Shinar? And I think what we'll discover is that what happens in Shinar definitely doesn't stay in Shinar. Don't miss our next study, What Happens in Shinar? on the next Discover the Word podcast. And now, let's listen to how this series about misreading Paul concludes. A lot of what we understand about the gospel and how we live our lives as followers of Christ is based on what Paul wrote in his letters to those first century churches. But it is so easy to misunderstand and misapply Paul when we read the New Testament with eyes that are so heavily influenced by our 21st century Western culture. And so let's listen. Thank you so much, Randy and Brandon, for being with us for these, I think, really important conversations on how we read and understand Mm -hmm. Paul. These scriptures, these holy scriptures, inspired words, were written by authors who were writing in specific situations to other people. And we're, in a sense, we're overhearing it. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to figure out now, how do we understand it? And you've reminded us we've got to give a consideration to the original context as much as we can find. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes Paul is writing a general teaching for all of us. Sometimes he's answering a specific question, and we need to keep that in mind. We also need to keep in mind the culture to which he was writing and the unique challenges that are so different. And one of my biggest takeaways from our conversations has been Paul probably couldn't even imagine a different world economy, social economic situations. He couldn't imagine and maybe we put too much on him. So yeah, while it's yeah. inspired text, yeah. Paul was a human. Yeah. I love the way you mentioned that Paul took something where he was applying a truth to their particular situation. We don't want to forget that we need to do that too. Mm-hmm. That Paul took the gospel that Jesus had in a Jewish Palestine context and he took that truth and he applied it to a specific situation in Lystra or in Corinth or in Rome, wherever. And now, 2,000 years away, often on the other side of the planet, we find that truth and then we apply it now. And we can't forget that last step. Mm -hmm. Once we find the truth, stop lying to one another. We can't just say, well, it wasn't that nice. And then we go out for coffee and it's great. No, we have to say, how does that apply in my particular situation or in my church's Mm -hmm. situation today? We have to do what Paul did and drill it back down and apply it. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that in a context where the world is watching how Christians behave Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out what is this gospel they're talking about Mm -hmm. based on how I see them Mm -hmm. living their life. And so we don't have the benefit, and that makes us a lot like Paul, of working this stuff out in private. We we have to work it out publicly Mm -hmm. um, as a part of our Christian witness. I saw a wonderful illustration of this, and it shows how things are misread. On Facebook, a girl had gotten engaged, and as is often done, chose her ring out on Facebook. And (laughs) they are planning to work abroad in a mission situation. And it's important for them to appear modest, not to flaunt wealth in that situation. They also are trying to save all the money that they can in order to be able to launch their ministry. So the ring is very modest. 
So she posts it, doesn't give any of that background information. And she is just viscerated on Facebook. Wow, the guy doesn't love you any more than that. I can't even see the stone in that ring and on and on. And of course, she and her friends come back to try to rescue her by giving background. But it does show how something can be misread Mm -hmm. because they didn't know the background. As soon as you hear the background story, you think, oh, that's fine. But you know, she was misread, and so we often will misread Paul, or the culture will misread Paul. You know, as we've been talking about all these different things, and the situation you gave is a really good one to me, because it seems to me, as you've been describing what Paul was doing, taking a Jewish-Palestinian gospel and applying it into a Roman-Gentile context, basically Paul was doing what a good missionary should do. A good missionary knows how to contextualize the message into the culture that they're addressing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that when we're thinking about imitating Paul, his call to us, you know, imitate whatever you have learned or heard or received from me, do these things and peace of God will be with you. I think one of those things that we have to figure out how to do to imitate Paul is to be sensitive to the context that we're speaking into, right? Mm. So we have to consider our context when we're reading Paul's context is different from ours, so there's risk of miscommunication that way. Mm -hmm. But there's also risk of miscommunication when we start talking about this gospel out into the world. And that's going to look very different for people living in different places. One of the things that we have to learn to do is to give grace to our fellow believers who are trying to do this in different places. When you hear someone talking about their faith and they live in a context that's hostile to the faith, you may think, oh, that person doesn't really sound, they sound like they're on the edge. Or they're, they sound hedging, like they're, or, they're hedging uh-huh, or they just uh-huh. won't come out and say what they believe. And I don't know if I can trust them. Well, it may be that they're being as careful and as clear as they can be to not offend with anything other than the gospel. And we have to give them the slack to do that. Mm. The problem is and we live in a world where if you preach a sermon in Manhattan or South Dakota or LA on Sunday, on Monday, it could be broadcast everywhere. And that sermon that made sense to the people who are listening to it in the room suddenly everybody's going to read it in a somewhat different way. And so I think for me, I think one important step here is something that Paul did is giving people the grace and space to work this out differently mm-hmm. uh, and to trust that people are you know, trying to do mm-hmm. that faithfully where they are. I think we need to trust Paul, trust scripture, also trust ourselves. Great example in Galatians, Paul tells the uh, Galatians, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. <laughs> yeah. You think, okay. <laughs> and then immediately, Paul goes and has Timothy circumcised. Mm-hmm. It looks like hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. He says one thing and then does another. Brandon pointed out, we have to know what the context is. We actually have to know a little bit about Timothy. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. So is he Jewish or not? Yes. Well, (laughs) actually in the second century, they had worked it out. They decided, you know what? If your mother's Jewish, you're Jewish. Because, you know, paternity back then was a little bit of a matter of faith, but maternity, (laughs) undisputed. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) So they worked it out. Which, if they work it out in the second century, means in the first century they were still arguing about Mm -hmm. it. So they were arguing about whether or not Timothy would be Jewish or not. If he's (laughs) not circumcised, then he's not Jewish. But there would be some, at least, who would say, well, Timothy is Jewish. His mother was Jewish. And therefore, he obviously chose not to be circumcised. So he must be one of those people who has decided not to be Jewish. And therefore, he's anti-Jewish. 
So for Paul, having Timothy on the team would mean that he's got someone who's markedly anti-Jewish, mm-hmm. and he's trying to go out and start preaching in the synagogues where he wants to begin his ministry. So that would have been a detriment to his ministry. So Paul makes a very pragmatic solution. Yet when he's talking to the Galatians, these are people who didn't have Jewish mothers. They're not Jewish. And for them, they would be taking on circumcision as a sign that we think to become Christian, you have to become Jewish first. It was a different Uh, context. It gets a little complicated, but it makes sense. (laughs) Different situation, different application. And for the listener whose mind is whirling at this (laughs) moment, thinking... I didn't know any of that. How did they know this stuff? This whole thing's made me just feel like a, a ball of yarn and a big knot inside. Mm. What would you say? Well, first off, please don't feel mm-hmm. that way. Christ met me as a 12-year-old at a church camp, and I didn't know any of this stuff. He meets us where we are, and he then moves us to where we need to go. And doesn't it also give precedent? You know, Paul, from his point of view, he was expressing the spirit of Christ who sacrificed himself for our behalf. Paul was trying to do that now. Mm -hmm. We have to believe that everything he was doing, he was trying to do it in the love of Christ, Mm. in behalf of Christ, in the name of Christ. And so the principle of of Christ's love now is being expressed in Paul. And it seems like even when we're dealing with these naughty situational issues, we have to say, you know what, at the heart of it, needs to be love. It needs yeah. to be a, a care and a consideration yeah. for others. And it, it needs to be some kind of behavior which involves self-sacrifice for the sake of others. Mm-hmm. And I think if we stay close to that, mm-hmm. we're close to the, the intent of Scripture. Paul would absolutely agree with you, and he had a wonderful way of saying it. He talked about all of his education, all of his training, all of it. He says it's rubbish in view of knowing Christ. It doesn't mean his training was rubbish. Uh (laughs) He actually will brag about it on another occasion. Mm -hmm. He meant it's gravel compared to knowing the diamonds of Christ. Mm -hmm. But actually, it was of great value. So learning these things and looking things up on Wikipedia, looking things up in commentary will be of benefit and it will help. But as you said, in the end, Mm -hmm. it becomes rubbish compared to knowing Christ Mm -hmm. and his love. So first things first is representing the love of Christ. We've talked about trusting Paul, trusting ourselves, trusting the scriptures. I think the other person that we need to trust in all of this is the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. who speaks through the scriptures to us and speaks in us about the scriptures and gives us that ability to love others with the love of Christ and to be motivated by the love of Christ. And so I would say in the world we live in where you have access to all of these resources, we should take advantage of them, right? We should Mm -hmm. use them. Mm -hmm. But I know plenty of people who didn't and who had the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and a community of Christ around them, and God speaks to them there. Mm. So you could have all of the other things and not the Spirit, and we'd never get there. Mm. But the Holy Spirit can guide us in these directions to bring us to the truth. And I think we just have to trust that Mm. and wrestle with these things with the Spirit. Wow, those were some great conversations here on Discover the Word about misreading Paul. And we are so thankful that we've been able to have Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien at the table with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder. Randy and Brandon, thank you. Always enjoy having you at the table with us. We learn so much. And as we wrap up this series about misreading Paul, let me urge you one more time to get a copy of the book called Paul Behaving Badly that Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien wrote. It'd be a great follow-up and a way to build on these conversations we had with them. Again, that book is called 
Paul behaving badly. Well, Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Before we go, just want to take another moment to say that we are grateful to have friends like you joining us for these conversations on Discover the Word. And we're especially thankful for the supportive friends who make this ministry possible through their financial giving. Discover the Word is part of Our Daily Bread Ministries, and it is our mission to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible accessible to people all around the world. You can show your support by giving online at discovertheword.org. Just click on the Donate tab. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.